This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, June 21st, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Was there a golden age of American patriotism? And what does patriot even mean? And what did it mean over the course of the last few hundred years of American history? Anthony Comegna is assistant editor for Intellectual History at Libertarianism.org. We spoke last week. To hear Dave Chappelle tell it, um, he had no idea that the weakness of white people, the one fatal flaw in white people was taking a knee during the national anthem. <laughs> and that was going to be the secret of uh, revolution in America for uh, other groups, black Americans, uh, most more specifically. But uh, the idea that uh, this is that taking a knee during the national anthem during sporting events is really disrespectful. It's unpatriotic is uh, to me every bit as problematic uh, as the national anthem itself, <laughs> the actual words and text and what it's what it refers to, and the idea that the national anthem is trotted out at every single sporting event you ever go to, and it is meant to be uh, presented as a um, an anthem to the military. And when you stand for the national anthem, you are standing for the U.S. military. And that, I don't know when that started. It's, I guess, really as long as I can remember. I don't really remember a time where that wasn't really the case. But I also understand that it is, it is expected at these major sporting events for you to stand up, no matter your thoughts about uh, anything else, but you need to stand up and show your respect. And... Um, I like the United States. I like living here. But it seems like that is taking the very notion of patriotism too far. And when I asked you to come talk about this, I thought to myself, well, surely there was a golden era of patriotism when it was all good. And you said, no, not really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, not really. And, uh, you know, the the... 20th century is not necessarily my wheelhouse, but you're you're right that this uh, this notion that um, the Pledge of Allegiance or being patriotic, um, putting your hand over your heart or something to show respect and deference, uh, all of that is kind of a relic of let's say the Progressive Era, the World Wars, and the Cold War, uh, and this. Uh, increasing tendency over the whole century toward greater militarism, greater concentration of state power, and more intrusion and influence on the part of politicians over our lives. And the astounding thing about the example from the NFL and taking a knee is that when you go back to the very origins of American history that we love to pride ourselves on, that we think made us exceptional from the rest of the world, the, the colonial period, well, uh, most people were rogues and outcasts from all nations of the earth. They were stateless peoples for the most part. Uh, it's, it's an incredible fact that a lot of people probably don't believe when they hear it, but it's absolutely true that before 1800, about five of every six people who came to the Americas were unfree in one way or another. Uh, just think of women, for example, who very rarely immigrated on their own. Um, they usually came attached legally to some sort of male figure in their life. So there's half the population right there. And obviously, some sex ratios were skewed here and there, but 
Half the population is unfree, coming here against their will, some sort of outcast as soon as they get here, uh, and just like they were probably in the society they came from. Not much changed for them. And, you know, take into account then the slaves and Native Americans who were here and integrated over time into white societies. Children, none of whom had any choice in the matter. Um, people who were the overwhelming majority of white men would have been indentured servants. And, you know, they had very little actual liberty in their lives until um, perhaps they would live long enough to see freedom dues and the expiration of their contract. But for the most part, everybody who staffed the colonies in the early days of the British settlement here, all of them were outcasts and rogues and radicals. And they did not want to be under the regime that ruled them. Now, we could perhaps say that in the 1600s, there were a few patriotic people in positions of leadership, folks like the Puritan divines in New England who felt a patriotic rush when they would cook up a, a land-grabbing war against the Indians and almost destroyed their colony a couple times. But that's about the sort of patriotism we had there. Uh, maybe the royalist governors in some colonies felt patriotic duties toward England, toward the king. Uh, perhaps there were bursts of warm feelings for their country among the, the uh, Puritans during the English Civil Wars or during the Glorious Revolution and the reorganization of the New England government. But <laughs> for the most part, these were people without states, without, without a country that represented them, even Great Britain. Um, and, and, you know, as the, the 18th century goes on and we get closer to the American Revolution, British politics transplants this court versus country mentality into the United States where people conceive of politics as divided between two basic broad factions. The country is out uh, in the, the countryside. Um, that's where their power is focused. That's normal people, average people with average interests. Uh, and then there's the court where the king gathers all of his sycophants together uh, at London and tries to you know, manipulate everybody else's lives. Well, the, the country is virtuous and good, and that's where patriotism lies, a, a simple, good-hearted love for your country. And then in the court, that's where people's good-hearted love for your country can be perverted and used by the monarch against the liberties of the people. That was the sort of feeling... Uh, that became increasingly popular moving up to the revolution. Then once the revolution happens, it's easy enough for that to translate into something different, right? Where at, with, with self-made governments in the colonies, their own state constitutions, a new federal constitution uh, that at least some people want to see put in place, there's this new political culture emerging which treats the country as something that the people have actually built for themselves now. And we get this, you know, 19th century, very familiar Jacksonian kind of nationalism where it's, it's just this almost dogmatic association of the country with you, yourself. And the identity then of, of an individual merges with the identity of their nation state in a way that really hadn't happened before in America because so many of the colonists were stateless peoples. And it, did that come about because uh, people felt individually invested in the creation of these new governments? 
Now, certainly that wouldn't wouldn't fall to their not necessarily their grandchildren, their great grandchildren wouldn't necessarily feel that same way. But for the people who were there at that moment and saw this come into effect and say, yes, this this seems good to me. I like this. I can get behind this in a significant way. I think you can you can certainly make that argument as uh, plenty of historians have. Uh, basically, all historians now who want to see something good in this uh, story in American history, they do try to make that case. But even in the, as you pointed out at the very beginning here, there was a significant population that had actually zero role. Yeah, in, whether it be voting or. Act, being a respected member of society and treated as an equal. Right. And whatever the political mythology might have changed to say, that fact continued. Uh, it really continues well up to the present day because most people still don't vote. And, and yet they're ruled over by a system where a minority of the population gets to dictate the ruling class for all of us. Um, and that really has always been the case in America. Patriotism is a political, ideological mythology that the ruling elite tell themselves and their voting majority tell themselves to justify their behavior toward the rest of us. And that's always been the case. So, you know, uh, historians talk about, say, a, a first patriot coalition and a second patriot coalition. Uh, the first patriot coalition is the large political bloc that came together to make independence a thing that actually happened and was declared. Uh, and then very quickly after that, the second coalition was formed and these are the federalists that we're all well aware of who were trying to gain some sort of uh, power over this first coalition that included all these rabble-rousing people in the streets, mobs in Boston and Philadelphia and stuff like that. Um, people throwing tea in harbors, you know. <laughs> they needed to gain some sort of control over that and, and have a greater power over the outcomes of who would rule this new country once independence was assured. So your view is that the second patriotic group uh, was there to co-opt the outrage yes. and the anger of the first group. And this was a specific plan that was implemented first by groups like the Sons of Liberty. Um, and the first Patriot Coalition was more or less a spontaneous thing that formed from the actions of average everyday people from sailors, uh, you know, at, right, right up the way to uh, newspaper workers, you know, pe people who ran editorial pages and printed papers. So people who drink a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, people who people who run were, newspapers and sailors. There were there were coalitions, informal, secretive coalitions between slaves and white working people in places like New York. They wanted to burn Fort George and, and New York City in 1741, welcome in the Spanish to rule over them instead, because the Spanish would at least be tolerant toward other races in a way that the British were not. And, you know, that was a widespread set of sentiments among these people in the late colonial period because still so many of them knew very well that they were on the outs. They were not part of any, you know, genteel group who would then be invited to rule these new colonies. But they were also being more directly harmed by British imperial policy. And they didn't like anybody ruling over them too much, and everybody was trying to do it a little too much, whether local elites or transatlantic British elites. So, you know, they are really the engine behind what became the first Patriot Coalition. And 
colonial elites start to tack onto these common people's activities, their own ideologies, their own you know, political machinations and plans for the future. And they do take it over in the 1780s and give us, it's those exact people who give us the constitution. So enslaved black Americans, women, uh, indentured servants uh, who were a mix of races, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, they were not a part of this second coalition or not attempted to be co-opted by this second coalition because their input didn't matter? Well, no, they, they were co-opted during, okay. during the revolutionary struggle, you know, and that's a, that's a key point because there is a time, <clears throat> there are a few years where everybody has to come together, whatever your political views, to get the war accomplished and to get independence secured. So this is where historians uh, have also said there are two questions to the American Revolution. Shall there be home rule and who shall rule at home? Well, the, the common people and the would-be elites or the, the elites who wanted to you know, take up more full political power after the British were kicked out, those two groups uh, did have to come together to decide the first question, shall there be home rule? And then they use the next 10 years or so to sort out that second question. And a lot of historians love to say, again, with the positive attitude here, that, oh, well, the who shall rule at home? We've decided over time that more and more and more and more of us will rule ourselves. And that's a good thing. Democracy gradually gets extended thanks to the American Revolution. But that is not really true. And we know better. Um, maybe only... Six to eight percent of the population ever voted for the Constitution, and yet it rules as the supreme law over all of us. A very tiny fraction of the population voted for Abraham Lincoln or any other presidents of the period, and yet, you know, he's the most important, best, greatest thing ever in American history. Uh, well, nobody elected him, really. Uh, a very, very tiny number of people actually wanted him to be president. Well, that still is true. A very tiny number of people actually elect the regime that we're supposed to pay loyalty and fealty to in our displays of nationalism all the time. So how do we um, – I guess how did that evolve? Because where we are today has to have some relationship to – uh, time periods of yesteryear. I'm re uh, reminded of Ned Flanders. He said, I, I wish we lived in a place more like the America of yesteryear that only exists in the brains of us Republicans. <laughs> and so that you're, you're referring to a lot of uh, historical accounts that are uh, more pleasant. And is it that uh, people look back on some golden age of patriotism and simply ignore the fact that there was a massive share of the population that was subjugated or otherwise not a full citizen? Well, I think that there is a tendency generation to generation that one generation's excuses and myths get turned into the next generation's facts of history, sort of the starting point of where you learn what actually happened. Um, and unless you have some enterprising people uh, called revisionists out there who want to go and question the the record and standing interpretations of it, um, there's there's a tendency to simply accept and move on and build the story out from the way that you received it. So you know, in, after the Constitution, people who started writing the first histories of the United States as a separate entity 
like George Bancroft, uh, they had an interest in preserving the kinds of liberties that they thought were won by the revolution and the constitution. And so that became the starting point for them. Of course, we can take it as a good thing. Um, we can take it as a great thing and then spend our lives – a politician like Bancroft, Democrat and a Jacksonian, uh, somebody deeply involved in 1840s politics. Um, he thought we can take it and shape it and make it our own just like those colonists did uh, when they settled what eventually became this amazing country. And that was his starting point. And then for later generations, they started with George Bancroft's style of, of Jacksonian nationalism, that of course this is a good thing. Look how well it's worked out for white men, right? Um, like me, George Bancroft or whomever it, it might be. And it has taken a very, very, very long time for historians to seriously question that kind of narrative. And it grew up over 150, 160, 200 years or so. So it's going to take a lot longer before we – normal people, non-academics really internalize the kinds of changes that have happened in scholarship about this period. It's just – it's very, very hard to counter – somebody's internal drive to say, yes, I'm a patriot. I do love my country, of course. But simple love of country does not mean you have to endorse this hundreds of year old set of myths about how exceptional and special and wonderful and you know not beholden to ethics your country is. So in, in a sense, the task of revisionist history now, uh, le or at least one task of revisionist history today uh, may well be separating the notion of patriotism from nationalism. Yeah, and from the individual. You know, Some, something that uh, one libertarian historian said, just sort of as an offhanded remark one day, sh shook me entirely out of my neocon phase of of uh, political thought and made me firmly a libertarian anarchist. He, he simply said, "Look, you are not your country." It was that simple, right there. That that's a powerful type of insight because it lets you divorce your personal identity from this really fake mythological tool that's used as uh, a vehicle for people in power to get greater power. Yeah, it's weird because you draw a lot of historical figures, important historical figures, uh, a whole lot of their – the thrust of their pitch to the people was making individual identity, identity synonymous with the state. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, to some degree, you know, people who want to call themselves patriots, they're always engaging in identity politics, right? The thing that we hate so much. Well, that's what, that's what politicians who have used that idea have always used it for. Uh, of course, people have an sort of innate identity as a person from a place. So if you want to troll a uh, somebody at a baseball game who's looking at you funny for sitting down during the national anthem, you should just say that I don't do identity politics. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, that'll, that'll probably not work, um, but I like that a lot. Anthony Comegna is editor of the new book, Liberty and Power, a reader. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.